When the world is ruled by violence and the soul of mankind fades, the children's path shall be darkened by the shadows of the neon maniacs. Episode 2. Joe Mangine and the Tarot Cards. Welcome to Episode 2 of In the Shadows of the Neon Maniacs. In this episode, we'll explore the origins of the infamous tarot cards featured in the film's opening. But first, let's take a closer look at the film's director, Joe Mangine. Mark Patrick Carducci tells Fangoria, before producer Steve Mackler came on board as a producer, the first director interested in Neon Maniacs was Ken Wiederhorn, who directed the 1977 horror film Shockwaves. Then four years later, Stephen Mackler secured the funding, and the hunt for the director began. Stephen Mackler reached out to the producer of The Sword and the Sorcerer, a film he sub-distributed. He asked a producer about the director of that film, Albert Pune, but he was already off directing a movie called Radioactive Dreams at the time. The producer of The Sword and the Sorcerer recommended Joe Mangine, the cinematographer of the film. Joe Mangine would say, the producer recommended I direct it because I basically had a lot to do with the filming of The Sword and the Sorcerer. At the time in Neon Maniacs, Joe Mangine had been a cinematographer for 15 years. My name is Timothy Snell and I edited Neon Maniacs. Joe has, has been, a, he's a Brooklynite, longtime New Yorker, neighborhood kind of guy who was very thin framed, vegetarian way back in the day, very unique in that regard, uh, very long hair, Probably was a little older, probably looked a little older than he was. The running gag was he had all these young guys like me running around, being his assistants and second assistants and stuff. And he, we always joke, you know, he was like, how old is Joe? How old is Joe? It was like a running gag or something, you know? Hello, I'm Dennis Fisher. I worked for Fingoria. Now the uh, director for Joseph Mangine, this is only his second film, and actually his bigger film. He had done one way back in 1968, but he was mostly a director of photography on other movies. My name is Patrick Bromley. I wrote the article Neon Maniacs, an underrated gem that deserved so many sequels on bloodydisgusting.com. Neon Maniacs is often referenced as being the first movie of director Joe Mangine, but it's actually his second movie, because about 20 years before Neon Maniacs, he made this movie called Smoke and Flesh. Oh, man. 
That's what my head needed. Right, Doctor? I have to admit, I've never seen. I don't know how easy it is to see. But Neon Maniacs is his second and final film. A lot of his work in the genre was kind of done as a cinematographer. And so he's a pretty good cinematographer. He gives some atmosphere to the stuff he was doing. Uh, he had started off, I think, and created on I Drink Your Blood, I believe. A young boy infects an entire town with rabies. I drink your blood. I'm Dr. Rebecca McHenry. My core area of research is in horror film history. The director, this guy, he was the cinematographer for some major, major horror and more like exploitation fare. Squirm, Van Nuys Boulevard, and Lords of Flatbush, two of my favorite kind of more like exploitation-y gang movies. I love them. And here's the DP on both of those. I mean, Alligator is a huge one. At first, no one believed it. Now, no one will forget it. Alligator. Joey said he didn't want to do, he had done Alligator. It was never supposed to be a slasher movie that was sort of suspenseful and real. He wanted to do this fantasy, he wanted to do this coming of age rock and roll fantasy thing. Did he want more production value? Did he want more effects, better effects? Did he want more money spent on it? Probably. I mean, he probably wanted a better score. He probably wanted a lot of stuff, right? Warriors was sort of a hot movie at the time, had come out, I guess, a year or two earlier. And this was all designed to be done under the Verrazano Bridge. That's, it was written for Brooklyn. And that's why Joe was originally involved in it. I mean, Joe used to drive tow trucks and he's a welder and he's an artist and he did a lot of painting. Joe Mangini did a lot of welding and sculpture and he was sort of part of that urban Brooklyn back in the 70s. It was pretty, pretty gnarly. I mean, down in Red Hook and all those areas. And so I think when he came out to California, for Joe, I know it was great because sort of easy living compared to New York in the winter and that sort of stuff. But Joe really just wanted to do something more upbeat. And he didn't, he didn't want me to do any of the scare tactic editing, you know, that fright stuff. It was supposed to be, I think, all mood and sort of atmosphere. I'm Alan Apone, makeup effects supervisor for Neon Maniacs. Uh, I'm Mike Spatola, makeup artist, uh, instructor at Cinema Makeup School. Uh, I worked with Alan on a lot of movies over the years, and Neon Maniacs was one of our earliest. I think we started working on it in like 84, right. and then we got halted for a while. We did get halted. And then I went and worked on Return of the Living Dead with Kenny. Right. And then came back and we finished Neon Maniacs. You're right. I think you're right. I'm trying really hard to remember a lot of stuff from that. I, I, can, I can barely remember anybody's names. I don't remember names as much either. I guess we could start from the beginning. Like, how did the project come to you guys? 
Well, because I had worked with Joe on, I can't remember the project name now, of course, but uh, I'd worked with Joe as, as a cinematographer. Joe was a cinematographer. He, you know, knew me and knew the work that I did uh, and my company did. So he approached me about doing the project and, you know, looked at it and said, yeah, it'd be great to do. I met with the, with the producers. It was um, Steve Mackler, who I'd done a couple things with. Anyway, there was a whole big budget issue because it was, it was a lot of work and they really didn't want to spend a lot of money. And, you know, and I said, look, if you can find someone to do all this work, I said, I'm not, not you know, it was a, the normal eighties horror movie, you know, dance that you do, you know, you want all this stuff for nothing, you know, you know, it's basically, well, if you can find it at seven 11, go pick it up. They finally, you know, uh, we finally came to a, you know, to, to a deal and, uh, and, and got the go ahead to do that. There's some hysterical stories about, you know, just this, just the prep work that went into this stuff before we, uh, before we actually got the set. Um, and it's Joe Mangine's second movie. You know, I'd worked with Joe as a DP and, um, uh, but never as a director. And this was his, second movie as a director. And he gave us these little maquettes. They're about, right? <laughs> yeah, they were like about that big. Yeah. Water clay dried out. And so prints in them and yeah. all kinds of stuff. So, you know, we would, we, you know, we took the maquettes and then, you know, Mike, I'm not a sculptor, I'm a mold maker, but, but Mike is a great sculptor. Mike sculpted, so we had a bunch of Stuart and we had a few other people sculpting the, the maniacs using the maquettes that Joe did as a guideline, not as a, as a rule, because they were really crude. They weren't finished sculptures by any uh, means. And so the first day when Joe came over to take a look at our sculptures, he looks at them and he goes, but, but these aren't exactly what I sent you. I said, well, no, because you don't want him to look like that, do you? <laughs> and he got, you know, regrettably, it wasn't my, you know, I didn't put my best foot forward. But I mean, if you saw the the McCats, they were they were laughable. They were great. They were a great guide. I'll give him that. And I told him that they're a great guide. But Jesus, I said, do you want me to put this thumbprint in the in the sculpture too? Because Mike had alluded to that. But it was like. And he goes, well, that's not the point. I said, but it is the point. I said, look, it, this is the first you're seeing the sculptures. Tell us what you want to change and, and we'll, we'll make the changes. And now's the time to do that. That's where we're at. And so, you know, after all the, you know, the initial um, hurt was gone, we, you know, got him, got all the characters to where he, he really liked them. You know, that, that was, uh, that was fun. Oh, so he carved the replicas of the maniacs himself? Yeah, he yeah, did. Like a, like a ball of water clay, and he just kind of pushed the shapes around. And the shapes, I mean, some of the shapes were there. Like, I remember, like, I was responsible for a couple of characters. One of them was Archer, and super angular. I mean, the shapes were there in his maquette, but again, very crude. It wasn't like a finished sculpture. So we tried to take some license and make them look like living beings and not 
like the water clay, you know, maquette. I'm Megan Navarro, lead critic and writer for Bloody Disgusting. I think where I ultimately landed on this movie is the first watch was pretty underwhelming as a kid who was obsessed with monsters. And then the second watch, you have the tempered expectations. And now I kind of feel like it's a Hasbro, like the monster movie version of Hasbro, where you have all of these toy collections that give more of a backstory than the cartoon ever did, is kind of how I feel about Neon Maniacs. There's just a lot more to them than the movie actually tells us, if that makes sense. No, that's actually pretty perfect way to describe it in a way. <laughs> yeah, that that's really cool, right? All those Star Wars action figures and Masters <laughs> Universe action figures. And you're like, wait, where is this guy in the whole show? Yeah, you yeah, he's more. not in the show. He's not yeah. in the show at all. But, you know, we've got a whole package on the back of the action figure with his backstory. And I feel like that would be what the ne Neon Maniacs is. It's that version. It's a Hasbro horror movie. So when the movie Neon Maniacs opens, we have a narration. When the world is ruled by violence and the soul of mankind fades, the children's path shall be darkened by the shadows of the Neon Maniacs. How do you feel about the opening of the film when the narration comes on? I feel like it kind of sets a tone that probably all of us at like age 12 or however in our childhood, we thought we were going to get that movie. It's got this very almost Masters of the Universe vibe. At the center of the universe, at the border between the light and the dark, stands Castle Grayskull. For countless ages, the sorceress of Grayskull has kept this universe in harmony. But the armies of darkness do not rest, and the capture of Grayskull is ever most in their minds. For to those that control Grayskull will come the power. The power to be supreme. The power to be almighty. The power to be masters of the universe. So it's it's it sets up this larger-than-life vibe that doesn't quite follow suit, but gives you everything you kind of need to know or you're ever really going to know about these neon maniacs. Patrick Bromley. The movie does kind of throw you right into a mythology that it never totally explains. It feels like they're trying to build out the world a little bit in a way that's, I think, pretty cool. I would rather, I would much rather have this narration than a scene where another character is like, oh, let me tell you about the Neon Maniacs and explain what the Neon Maniacs are. This is like just abstract enough that it tells me a little bit, but not everything. And so much of the movie does that. And that's kind of what keeps me coming back to it. My name is Sean Robert, and I had the opportunity to design and write the Neon Maniacs trading cards for Terror Vision Records. I, I felt like this was their their Star Wars crawl at the beginning. But like, you know, I felt like they needed to try to shoehorn in some kind of explanation. And what's brilliant about it is it doesn't explain anything. It's an explanation that just just begs more questions. And you have to pull your own meaning out of this. It reminds me of when I first saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a kid. The opening voiceover kind of gave me chills. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
but it was explaining the situation we were about to see. The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular, Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother, Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young. But had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And since then, I just became a sucker for opening narrations in horror films. I, I love the tone of the voice and I love the dread. Yeah. Night of Comet has one. Since before recorded time, it had swung through the universe in an elliptical orbit so large that its very existence remained a secret of time and space. But now, in the last few years of the 20th century, the visitor was returning. But the opening narration to this is, is just always confuses me. But it's kind of like what you're saying. It doesn't explain really anything. <laughs> it, it, you're right. It, it opens up more questions. Mm -hmm. And the movie this narration strangely reminds me of is the opening narration to the film within the film of 1985's Demons. The sleep of reason gives birth to monsters. You, you talk about the, the Fangoria to being this Rosetta Stone. It's true. There's the drop line at the very beginning of that article where the writer is talking about Neon Maniacs was also a poem that he wrote, like an epic poem about the Hell's Angels. And I'm curious, is is it like an excerpt? Like, I don't have, I don't even know where to find that. But like, it, it sounds like something that should be like ripped from that or something. That's a good point. It does seem more like a poem. Like how uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 opens up with that little Edgar Allan Poe saying, without any narration, it's just there on the screen. My name is Stephen Romano. I am the creative director of Avon Press, which is a division of Vinegar Syndrome Publishing. Oh, you want to talk a little bit about the opening, what you remember from it? I, I remember it really well, you know, because it has a strange quality to it. You know, it starts with this this really foreboding and almost lonely shot of San Francisco. And, and it's a shot of a fisherman, you know, against this sort of nightfall uh, tableau. So Neon Maniacs opens with a fisherman walking along by the Golden Gate Bridge, and he happens upon these cards. And the cards, they're kind of like big-sized trading cards, because trading cards, this would have been the 80s, were huge at the time period. You would have them for different movies, you'd have them for garbage pole kids, you'd have them for sports. Well, in this case, he finds these cards laying on the ground underneath the Golden Gate Bridge, and they're for these various monsters. They're like pictures of these various monsters, but they look like actual trading cards. Jim Branscombe, Cinematic Boy. I love that opening with that fisherman 
kind of walking through and he just finds like the, the trading cards or tarot cards or however you want to think of those that's a that's a choice and that's a really interesting choice because it's just laying it out like here are all your characters here are the neon maniacs it's a really great opening and probably the best fake out use of san francisco to la i've seen since the room my name is timothy snell and i edited neon maniacs after the film was made, Chris just said, there's got to be something that sets this up, sets up the om ominosity, you know, sets up the, the tone. So, because in all honesty, the movie doesn't really start out as a horror movie. That was all added afterwards. The opening? Yeah. I'm Bob Farina, one of the producers of Neon Manics. I'm Chris Arnold. I was one of the partners of Cimarron Productions, which was the company that came in to uh, put the Neon Maniacs together after the initial production had fallen apart. That was a concept we came up with, I remember. Sure. There was the tarot yeah. cards. Right. Yeah. For sure. So what what was behind that? Was it just to kind of show? Nothing. It was, it, we, we, we just wanted some mysterious way to, kind of tease the, the the monsters early on the idea of tarot cards i remember i back in those days i used to actually read people's tarot cards and so i was kind of interested in tarot cards and uh, i thought well this could be a graphic kind of way to present them you know with names the name the names and the reason was the names of the neon maniac kind of reminded me of the names on tarot cards you know, the Joker, Death. The, I mean, if you look at the names on tarot cards, they're like the names of the Neon Mania. But then it shows the fisherman just sort of walking by uh, this area of the bridge at the base of the bridge, and he sees this cow skull, and he turns it over, and there's tarot cards in it. And you don't have any idea what it means. And he's just sort of sifting through them. And um, it, it, it's so unusual. And I think the weirdest thing about it is the cow skull. Where, where did that come from? Where, who sat down and came up with that? I wonder if that was even in the script or if this was something they went back and shot later or something like that. Because it's such an odd idea that... that, that, that the, there are tarot cards inside a cow skull that sort of herald the coming of the maniacs or whatever i'm not i'm not sure where that came from but it's so weird that you're either in or you're out but the skull that cow thing on the opening that skull thing i think that's just chris getting his homage to cimarron in there because cimarron you know it's the name of the company and he always loved the uh steer had you know bone dead you know remnant as a symbol and i think he took an opportunity to just throw that in there that's what i think yeah oh by the way so tim brought up uh in the opening scene the trading cards are in a skull right. tim tim snell said was that a tribute to Cimarron because you guys used like a cow skull for yes. Cimarron. Is that true? Well, not, I don't think so. You, well, you said yes, though. I think it was. See, you, you we, think need, it was something? we needed something 
to hide the cards. And somebody came up with coming up with the skull. It was a cow skull or cow a skull. steer skull? Steer it skull. Looked like a steer skull. With the, the guy turns over, cards are underneath it. Huh. And this with, is a cop. I, I right? Know, no, fisherman. What? Fisherman. Oh, fisherman. fisherman walks up, sees the skull against the door, picks up the skull, turns it over, the cards are there. I think Rick Probst did the cards. Rick Probst did do the cards. I remember that. Okay, my name is Rick Probst, and uh, at the time of Neon Maniacs, I was the graphic designer for Cimarron Productions. So basically, I became, by default, uh, the graphic designer for the film project. I, I believe that um, so I must have gotten some production stills, maybe slides of all of the maniacs. And I'm guessing from looking at them, and because I know what was popular at the time, that I took the slides and I had color Xeroxes made of the maniacs at which point i mounted them on something and then added additional details uh there's obviously from looking at them some wide marker to kind of separate the maniacs from their background especially with axe and um there was airbrushing being put on them axe's axe has a you know a little lens flare on it uh so it was a lot of paint applied to the color Xerox is to make sure that the images of the maniacs would be easily readable on film. Well, I, of course, had no idea there was uh, a large fan base. And, yeah, and, and it surprised, surprised me to find out that they were talking about the cards at all. But then after watching it, that is one particular thing that you could pull out and talk about. I mean, there's the maniacs themselves and all that bit about their kind of mysterious unknown origin, you know, the cards themselves, and I think the word Carol may have been used, but I'm also sure that it was realized right away that we didn't or weren't planning to make tarot cards because they would communicate a particular, you know, thing and that has, doesn't have anything to do with the story. Again, we made the cards pretty big, and I think most of that was uh, so it would show on Film, I'm not really sh sure they ever told me what their plans were for the cards. Uh, I think the director stopped by my, my room at Cimarron where uh, I made art. You know, he may have, like, made the slightest suggestions about bringing something else out on the detail of some face or something on the card, but there was not a lot of interaction with anyone. And so I, uh, you know, put the cards together, handed them off probably to Brian, and uh, that was probably the last I saw of it. You probably had nothing to do with deciding to put the cards in a cow skull, right? Nope. Didn't know what they were going to do with them. Didn't get invited to the shoot. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I felt a little in the dark. I also didn't know the right questions to ask. As I say, I was very young in the film industry at the time. And uh, it was a lot of learning going on. You know, I didn't know the questions to ask in some cases. How are you going to use this on film? You know, the thing about the cards is I just wish I had, like, any more memory of 
kind of what went on. Like I said, I believe the word tarot may have been used and that I may have even shown the director, uh, you know, a sketch or a mock-up of two. And I may have even kind of uh, pushed them away from the tarot card idea because I felt that it was going to need, there were 12 maniacs, that it was going to need a lot of illustration done by somebody other than myself. And... So, uh, you know, going uh, a wrap based on getting some production stills or images or even maybe images were from one of their, you know, on-site photographers. And then we went to Color Xerox, so we were doing reproduction quickly and inexpensively. And that was definitely a big concern, always, is that uh, there was no money. Do you, do you remember, like, in the back of the card, you kind of had, like, an image of a... I believe it's like a lizard eating its own tail. Do you remember that? I saw it this morning looking closer at the beginning when that guy finds the thing in the skull. And to tell you the truth, I don't remember. There may have been on only one surface. As when he turns the skull and he finds that, it may have been only on the surface that's just above those, uh, the rest of the car. I'm not sure. I don't remember. I would come back to the Neon Maniacs, trying to figure it out. Like how some people break down Donnie Darko, I was constantly trying to break down the Neon Maniacs, trying to figure out what it all means. Then one day, I noticed a symbol in the back of the tarot cards. It was a serpent eating its own tail, forming a circle. This is the Ouroboros. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the Euroboros is a circular symbol that depicts a snake or dragon devouring its own tail, and that is used especially to represent the eternal cycle of destruction and rebirth. Is this why when the maniac Mohawk loses his arm, it grows back? Then I thought, are the Neon Maniacs agents of this symbol? Have they been on an infinite loop? throughout history, collecting members, seeing that the scavenger is dinosaur-like, the samurai, the archer, the hangman, they are all from different historical ages. The maniac, Juice, could be futuristic. What if they're on an eternal, regenerative loop through our and other dimensions? Like how the Ouroboros symbolizes the eternal cycle of creation and destruction, the maniacs emerge in our world to kill and drag their victims to their own dimension. I'm guessing they are probably reanimating the dead there. If that is the case, transformation is the key aspect to the Ouroboros. The maniac's own zombie-like appearance could imply that themselves are products of the cycle, once victims and now perpetrators of this endless loop of death and rebirth. These were just some of my overthought theories, but I was excited to ask about this symbol and why it was put in the back of the cards. Is this the key to the neon maniacs? When I told Rick Probst, who designed the cards, my theory, his response was, That's probably a dead end. <laughs> the script read, I, I, I believe, like the, the movie that scene, you know, that meaning there wasn't more explanation. Nobody, uh, what kind of cards do you need? Oh, I don't know. I need some cards. You know, nobody uh, gave additional insight or depth uh, into anything in my memory. And I did bring this up to Chris Arnold and Bob Farina, the two producers who created the tarot card sequence. 
Rick Probst doesn't remember where it came from, but on one side of the tarot card, there's like a, a lizard eating its own tail in a circle. Yes. Do you guys know why you chose that by any chance? No. It was no. Oh, and then so and then here's me watching this movie so many times. I started looking into it and then I came across like an Egyptian symbol of the dragon eating its own tail and it means rebirth it means circle of life and then that's when i started thinking that's why when mohawk guy loses his arm that's why the arm grows back you know and i'm starting <laughs> to try to figure then i'm telling this theory to other people and they're like oh yeah look at that and we're and literally <laughs> you guys did it by accident yes well i mean yeah it there are so many holes in the story and that's what makes it so fascinating for people to try to fill them with their own imagination, you know? And then what happens is a door opens behind it and you see a, a, an instrument of death raised. And it's sort of implied that the guy gets killed. You don't really see it. And then you see the, the cards strewn on the ground and you get this kind of cheesy main title that says Neon Maniacs. Maniac number one, Axe. Dennis Fisher writes in Fangoria. There's a maniac called Axe, who's your classic escapee from an asylum. He wears a straitjacket and carries the weapon he's named after. Yeah, so the first maniac we technically see in the movie is Axe. You know, we don't see his face, but we see the Axe. So can we start with him? Yeah, that was Alan's character. Yeah. <laughs> Axe was, um, God, he was one of those guys that, you know, just was totally into wanting to be in an 80s horror movie, <laughs> you know? I mean, it was just like, he would get so into it and get, he would get himself all worked up. My recollection when we were doing, like when we did the cast on him, I know he was a little um, nervous about doing the head cast, but after that, I mean, he was just like in the trailer when we were getting ready and stuff like that. He was just, he was, had so much energy. Like that's what he wanted to do. I'm trying to remember it. I know that the, the, um, I don't have a lot of like anecdotal stuff with him that I can think of that comes to mind. I know that when he was kind of, and check me on this, uh, Michael, but he was kind of like, like a group leader. You know, I mean, that's what I, I remember. Yeah, I, I think you're right on that. You know, um, he sort of like really got the guys going and, you know, was always looking to, and it didn't matter if we, because we had so many night shoots. He was all, always full of energy. Yeah, I love his character. According to that Fangoria article, it says that he's like an escapee from an asylum, wears a straitjacket. You know, the whole concept behind Axe. And that's one of the things we never really got a lot of, you know, like we never got into character development from-, from Yeah, there's no backstory on them. There's never any backstory. <laughs> it was like, okay, this is Axe. All right. <laughs> and he carried an Axe. <laughs> we'll just sort of make him look like he got hit by an Axe or something. Um, yep. You know? <laughs> yeah, didn't he have like big stitches or like- Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> and then what happens is you get the credits 
And this music starts happening that kind of sounds like it could be in a porno movie, you know, or 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 a or a or a 1980s teen, you know, coming of age film or something like this. It does not sound like a horror movie at all. That wraps up this episode of In the Shadows and the Neon Maniacs. I would like to give a big thanks to Sean Farina for putting together and recording the interview with Chris Arnold and Bob Farina. Our opening and closing theme music is by Shane McKinney. This show is written, produced, and edited by your host, Stephen Scarlatta. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share this podcast so we can reach more horror fans like yourselves. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, stay out of the shadows.